The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Resilience, the process and outcome of successfully adapting to difficult or challenging life experiences. In other words, to spring back into shape, elasticity. Tough times are an inevitable part of life. We've all experienced varying challenges in some form or another. Job loss, relationship problems, chronic illness. And it goes without saying that life experiences like these can leave us feeling overwhelmed, lost, and in despair. However, seeing that difficult situations are an inevitable part of the human experience, learning to cope is an invaluable life skill, and gratitude may be one of the best ways to protect ourselves emotionally and mentally when the storm hits. Thankfulness plays an optimal role in rewiring our brains for not only resilience, but optimism and the greater good. Call it grace recognition, or thankfulness. And with that positivity, we can find resilience in ourselves and our loved ones. And thus, we gather around the table with family and friends to celebrate the sole idea of giving thanks. Even those times when it irks us most, the loud and robust sit across the table from the quiet and withdrawn, the meek, the boisterous, drunken and sober eyes on the horizon, or merely on the plate before them, embracing the moment and glorifying gluttony. We split bread with those among us shining bright, down and out, on the verge of success, on the brink of loss, and those looking back on a long life of ups and downs. 
In our quest to succeed, we find moments we must profess, confess, suppress and withhold, even withdraw. Amongst the soapboxing and wildfire gossip, others detach in solemn search for resilience, often biting the tongue amongst the crowd with a thrown-on smile. If not for the sheer sake of pleasantness, a desperate quest to preserve dignity and false hope and sidestep humiliation. Thanksgiving, 1992. Donna Tompkins and her daughter Justine, who had just turned three. Donna, though estranged from her husband John, shared Thanksgiving with her cousin-in-law, Christina Worland. Donna was in the throes of the storm, life's challenges, a complicated divorce, strapped finances, and a general sense of failing to live up to great expectations. Her father had hoped by 30 she'd have found a lucrative career and a great man to stand by her side, and that they might together succeed in life. But Donna's emotional health was struggling to meet the demands of the external and the internal, as she faced that holiday season that rolled around once more. But Donna did what she did best. She threw on that warm smile, presented herself in good spirits, without a complaint to speak of. When asked over a glass of wine, she responded that she had been busy with her two jobs and quickly changed the topic to her favorite subject, her daughter, Justine. Donna loved to boast about Justine to anyone who would listen. She was proud of the little one. Now finding herself a single parent, along with the difficulties such ensued, Donna hugged Justine tight, as though the little one might provide some shield before the onlooking world, searching for cracks in the tail. Donna must have sensed that Justine was all she had a thousand miles away from her close-knit family back east. Holding Justine tight, she sought refuge in her warmth, comfort, purity, and innocence. Donning false smiles can be exhausting, and holding in grief is detrimental. And at the end of the day, Donna often sought an ear to hear out her heartache, be it her close friend and confidant, Yona Price, co-worker at the Elks or any bartender or server she worked amongst who would listen. Even the operator at the National Bank, who actively screened calls for Donna, as John had been calling her at work nonstop. Donna had recently found emotional support in her new boyfriend, Rod Franciscovich. Seeing Rod and Donna first cross paths during Mass at St. Mary's Church, Donna felt a special bond with Rod, both having grown up Catholic. Now that Donna was living in the Baptist Protestant community of Canton, Illinois, and knowing her estranged husband John had not taken her faith seriously, she cherished Rod's common conviction. But Donna confessed to Rod that she was struggling with her faith. After all, when the storm hits, it often seems God is not listening on the other line, let alone answering the phone. And such conviction can be a challenge. But Rod had an idea and told her about a three-day retreat in the nearby city of Peoria. Cursillo, it was called. In Spanish, a small lesson. According to Cursillos, it is a Christianity movement that, through a method of its own and through God's grace, enables the essential realities of the Christian to come to life in the uniqueness, originality, and creativity of each person. In becoming aware of their potential and while accepting their limitations, they exercise their freedom by their conviction, strengthen their will with their decision, to pacify friendship and virtue of their constancy in both their personal and community life. 
The Kursilo movement consists of proclaiming the best news of the best reality, that God in Christ loves us, communicated by best means, which is friendship towards the best of each one, which is his being person and his capacity of conviction, decision, and constancy. And what needs to be emphasized today, now, and immediately, to be on the cutting edge of today's debate is to facilitate and make possible for every person to encounter oneself always in absolute, essential to be able to encounter God and others. A mishmash of words and ideas, a whirlwind of questionable concepts I am aware. But Rod, having been on the retreat before, offered to sponsor Donna, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for those of the Catholic faith. And the Peoria Cursillo began on a Thursday evening that late fall. The teachings of Jesus Christ were presented in an atmosphere of warmth, joy, and fellowship, as music and skits provided entertainment. And during the three days, Donna listened to the gospel message, broken into fifteen short talks. Five were given by clergy and centered on grace, the gift of God to all persons. The other ten were given by laypersons who already had made the Cursillo. The talks that built on one another, talks that dealt with Christian study, action, leadership, living a life in relation to God, and the layperson's role in the church, and similar reflections on situations encountered in daily living. Each talk was followed by small group discussions in which Donna confessed to the specifics of her suffering, for one, her divorce. But Donna divulged what had really been bothering her lately. She had been living in fear of not only her husband, but of a man called Steve. Steve was a pseudonym for someone she had recently dated who worked for UPS and the Elks Club. Donna said she was scared to death of him. And she told the circle Steve had been through drug and alcohol rehab and had been physically abusive to his ex-wife. And that Steve had developed an unhealthy obsession with her. And Steve had been calling her non-stop driving past her house at all hours to see who she was with. Steve would go so far as to call Donna while she was at Rod's house, saying things over the phone like, God will tell you you belong to me. But Donna was reassured by the group of the obvious, that God does not partake in such devilish behavior. According to the Cursillo program, what the once-in-a-lifetime experience does for a person, or what happens over that weekend, seeing each person comes to the Cursillo from a different place and time and a different relationship with God, and understandably responding differently to the material presented, and the experience of community living in a Christian atmosphere, the results may differ. But for some, as in Donna's case, the experience left her feeling a total turnabout for her life an awakening and enrichment of which she had once known and believed so indeed, faith in the grace of God. Surrender It is doubtful there was anything in life Donna loved more than her family. Donna's father, Donald Amacucci, worked for Texas Instruments in Austin. He would meet her in Stanford, Connecticut to spend the holidays with her three sisters. Susan, Ann, and Mary, and two brothers, John and Joseph. And since their mother Susan's funeral, Christmas would be the first time the whole family would reunite since her death. Having grown up in a large Catholic family, 
moving alone deep into the heart of flyover country was a lonely experience for Donna, and this time together with her family was to be cherished. She could not stop talking about it for days at both the bank and the Elks, and indeed her co-workers grew tired of viewing mountainous stacks of photos and hearing endless stories of strangers they'd never laid eyes on, who lived lives far off back east, a land utterly foreign to the Midwest and lives led in the prairie heartland, a bubble many found impossible to escape. But what Donna found in Connecticut was a father frustrated with her lack of career success and disappointment in her failed marriage. He may not have known the pressure Donna felt from his grand expectations, and the weight of the words in which were her burden to carry. And as John called Donna from back on the farm, demanding she and Justine cut the vacation short and return immediately, Donna eventually caved to his demands and flew back early. Her boyfriend Rod picked her up at the regional airport in Peoria, and Donna cried in his arms. Donna had returned crushed by John's nagging and her father's disappointment in her life choices and not nearly as recharged as she had hoped and expected. Seeing Donna in such low spirits, Rod had a plan to cheer her up. He invited another couple to accompany them to spend New Year's Eve at a comedy club in Peoria for some laughs. So Donna got a babysitter for Justine, and after the show they went to a party at a friend's house in Edwards, Illinois. That night Donna slept alone on the daybed in her kitchen, as she let two girls from the party crash on her new sofa bed in the living room. Here's to a new year, Donna hoped, as she went to the bank to see about her long-anticipated promotion that her boss, Trust Officer David Haynes, had long promised her. Resolution. Pray and keep trudging away. But Donna left with little more than a holiday bonus, which she shoved in the new leather purse she had received for Christmas, small and deep red in color. A few days later, having heard word at the Elks that Donna was getting more involved with the church, Terry Haynes caught her at home. Though Donna spotted Terry through a crack in the curtain, she answered. Terry gifted her a framed religious card, and Donna, nerves frayed and at her wit's end, cried into his arms, clinching desperately onto the body of a man she feared. Returning to work after the holidays, Donna asked David a question about her taxes. Her finances were tight, as John refused to help with Justine's expenses. And when David found a solution to save her a bit of cash, Donna threw herself into his arms, telling him she loved him. And co-workers in the bank gossiped that they had seen the two kissing in their office. Over the next few days, Donna had tried to call the furniture delivery guy who had sold her the sofa bed a man named Donnie Bull. She rang Wright's Furniture to ask about a recliner chair he had also offered to sell her. But Donnie was never in when she called, and having spent time with Donnie at Iona Price's house a few times, and even alone at his apartment, Donna found herself with a powerful attraction to him. Supposedly, she would call him so repeatedly at not only his own apartment, but at his buddy David Nils, where he lived with his parents, where Donnie would often hang out, telling David's mom to tell Donna that he was not around, even if he was. As it was said, 
Donnie was feeling overwhelmed with such sudden attention from a woman with a caliber of beauty such as hers. Though Donna would almost always give a few days notice when she needed a sitter for Justine, on Friday, January 8th, when Donna arrived for work, she asked co-worker Jennifer McMillan if she could watch Justine that evening. Donna said Rod had asked her out on a date and apologized for the short notice. Jennifer said sure, and Donna dropped Justine off after work. Donna was 20 minutes late that evening picking up Justine from Jennifer's, and Justine was already asleep when she arrived. Donna told Jennifer that instead of going out, Rod cooked steaks on the grill, and that she was sorry for being late, but they had fallen asleep watching a movie together. The next day, John picked up Justine around 2.30pm and took her to spend time on the family farm near Cuba, where she could also see her grandparents. Donna called Rod and said she would be over soon, but that she had to stop by the store and buy spermicide. She arrived around 5.30pm as he was, again, cooking steaks on the grill. Donna told Rod she had forgotten the spermicide, and as Donna spent the night with Rod, the two made love despite a recent scare, without protection. Donna awoke before sunrise and rushed home to ensure she'd be there before John arrived with Justine. John had chores on the farm and would be dropping her off early. John was surprised to see Donna open the door in her wrinkled dress, and as he demanded a kiss from Justine, the little one seemed angry with her father, and he threatened to take back all of her Christmas presents. But Donna whisked Justine in the door, insisting that they must hurry and get ready for church. The two arrived at St. Mary's by 10.30 a.m. During Mass, Justine was cranky and kept crying, despite Donna's attempts to quiet her. After the service, Rose Montoya approached the mother and daughter to speak with Justine. She asked the unhappy little girl if she'd like to go up and see the baby Jesus. But Justine with a pout said, I want mommy to take me. And the two left within an hour of arriving. Donna had to return to Rod's, nervous about taking Justine with her. Rod's brother Anthony Franciscovich, who lived just across the street, was there when they arrived. But as the cranky girl, dressed in nice clothes, carried on with her fit, he walked back across the street to his house. The three watched a TV show called Rin and Stimpy, and when Justine acted up, Donna disciplined her the way that Rod had suggested. But having gone from minimal discipline to somewhat extreme, the harsh punishment shook up Justine, and she began to wail harder. That evening would be the Kmart Christmas party at the Elks Club, so Donna soon left to prepare for work and drop off Justine at Carrie Schaefer's house at around 5 p.m. Tuxedo, bow tie, hair made up, smile wide, lips a glossy red, ready to serve. Donna would be paid $31.50 for working that evening. Iona was the other waitress serving steaks that night. As things slowed down a bit, Donna took a moment to let that forced smile relax into a frown as she complained about the lawyer fees she was so concerned about in her divorce case. Donna leaned on the counter and talked to Teresa Sale, who was tending bar. Donna told Teresa that John was still coming over late at night and early in the morning, insisting that she go out on a date with him. And when she would say no, John would get angry and go off about the cost of the divorce. John had gotten this idea in his head, Donna said, that since she returned from Connecticut, John believed that she wanted to get back together with him, 
but Donna insisted that John misinterpreted her desire to approach life more positively as reconciliation. Donna also expressed that she would never get back with John, not after the abuse. Never again. After the Christmas party ended and the doors were locked around midnight, Iona and Donna settled in at the bar, took off their bow ties, and had a few beers. Iona took out a pack of cards and knowing Donna's strife, read the cards for possible guidance for her troubled friend. But as Iona laid out the cards, all spades appeared before her. And in those spades, Iona saw the unspeakable and quickly put them away. Vowing, if anything terrible were to happen, she would never read cards again. Donna went home around 2 a.m., leaving Justine to spend the night at Carrie's, who would take her to the YMCA daycare in the morning, where she also worked. Donna awoke with her alarm and was out the door by 8.05 a.m. It was a short night, and during her shift at the bank that Monday, she called Rod at Office Max in Peoria. She invited him over after he got off work, and the two talked for a while until Rod suddenly hung up on Donna. Donna picked Justine up after work and had her in bed by 8 p.m. as Rod had suggested. And Donna woke up to Rod letting himself in with a key around 1.30 a.m. The two talked for a bit and shared a smoke. Then Donna got up and went to the bathroom to apply spermicide. The morning of January 12th, Donna left Rod to sleep in, awakening him only to remind him to take the key to the apartment. A co-worker called in sick that day which irritated Donna as it doubled her workload. She was in a bad mood, exhausted from staying up late with Rod again. She snapped at bank officer Max Scott, and her boss David felt she was being quite disrespectful. Carrie stopped in to cash a check and chatted with Donna for a while, but Donna threw on that smile, and then a strange man entered and asked for Donna personally. He was up front and asked Donna out on a date telling her he had been interested in her for quite some time. Donna thanked him graciously and told him she was in the middle of a difficult divorce. And as the man left, Donna asked around and discovered he was the ex-husband of Sheila Martindale, a woman who was secretly dating her estranged husband, John. Donna waved David goodbye at the end of her shift as she exited the basement office at 5 p.m. She stopped by the Elks 15 minutes later for a beer, some cigarettes, and to blow off some steam. Donna complained of the spooks at the bank as she chugged a can of Miller Lite with Linda Pig, who was tending bar, and regular Clarence Sprecher. But when offered another beer, Donna said she had to run, and that there was something she had to do, in an uncharacteristic rush. And on her way out the door, Linda hollered, reminding her of the birthday party they had planned for Donna on the 22nd. Donna then went to the YMCA to pick up Justine. Sally Gregory, who worked at the daycare, told Donna that Justine had been somewhat temperamental, throwing tantrums, and that she seemed overly tired. As Donna tried to slick down the hair that stubbornly stood straight up on Justine's head, while buckling her into the car seat in the back of her Pontiac Bonneville, Donna told Sally that she would make a doctor's appointment for Justine and see what the matter might be. As Donna pulled out of the YMCA and headed home, the wind had picked up and snowflakes began to fall as a winter storm was gathering on the horizon. At home, 
In the stifling heat of an unruly boiler, Donna awoke from a short nap the two took together and cracked the window to let in some fresh air. She made Justine dinner and herself a drink, Southern Comfort schnapps and cider. And just as she put Justine in the bath, John called and Donna told him he'd have to call back as she was washing her hair. Justine was in bed by eight, and just as Donna made another drink and was to light up a cigarette, John called back at 9 p.m. She told John that Justine was already in bed, but John had wanted to talk to her about a few things. The divorce, of course, but he also wanted to ensure Donna had paid the premium on the life insurance policy he had recently taken out on her and Justine. Having had enough of the day, Donna lied to John and told him yes, and got him off the phone. She called up Rod around 10 and told him she had brought home a liter of Canadian mist, also uncharacteristic of Donna. She said a strange man had come into the bank to express his interest in her, and how odd it was that he was the ex-husband of John's secret girlfriend. The two shared a drink over the phone as Ren and Stimpy flickered on the television screen, and they shared a laugh about the show. Donna inhaled her cigarette deep into her lungs, and as she collapsed her chest and let the breath go, frigid headwinds slurped the curling smoke out the cracked window, whisking it away into the darkness of night. As little did mother and daughter know, a storm was brewing. Or had they? Had Donna sensed the drive behind her desperate acts? Those vices she sought and clung to desperate to escape a flight? Or in the fight, had she found such stubborn resilience? And what of that surrendering to the grace of God? And Justine, the tantrums and fits, a cry for help? Exhausted by the stressors of impending doom thrust upon an innocent child, helpless and at the mercy of an intention-tangled world. Had they huddled together, mother and daughter, on the cusp of this winter storm? Or had mother, with one last call, indeed surrendered to the harrowing, encroaching hour as the hand of time neared midnight. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. 
This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.